Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 13, Defend Us in Battle. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, to celebrate the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels, we'll be doing something a little different. Normally, on this show, we investigate the lives of holy men and women throughout the history of the Church. But the subject of today's episode is not a man, a woman, or even a human being. He has neither body nor sex. We call him he only by convention. And no one here on earth knows the full story of his life. But he has a story all the same. A story which began long before the creation of Adam and Eve, and which will only be fulfilled on the last day. I am, of course, talking about our holy protector, the Prince of the Heavenly Host, St. Michael the Archangel. Michael has been venerated as the greatest of angels for well over 2,000 years, since at least the age of the Second Jewish Temple in the half-millennium before the birth of Christ. It's quite likely that his cult is even older, preserved in spoken tales from the earliest days of the chosen people. We first learn about Michael in a Hebrew scripture that did not make it into the Old Testament, the so-called Book of Enoch. While it's not part of the canonical Bible, Enoch tells us a lot about the biblical worldview especially in its descriptions of angels and demons. Much of the spirit lore found in this text would later inform the writers of the New Testaments and the church fathers beyond them. So while it should be taken with a grain of salt, it is still worth reading today. Even though it was written down in the 3rd century before Christ, the Book of Enoch claims to be the work of an antediluvian patriarch of the same name. Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah in the age before the Flood, the time known to Christians as the First Age. We learn very little about him in the Bible, but in the Second Temple era, he was regarded as a mystic whose visions of heaven and hell had been handed down for thousands of years. Whether or not that's true, the name of Enoch bore great weight in the last few centuries B.C., the apocryphal Book of Enoch, containing his supposed visions, is basically an expansion of the flood story in Genesis chapter 6, adding more detail to the events that led up to God's decision to drown the old world. In case you don't have a Bible open in front of you, here's what Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 actually says. When people began being numerous on earth, and daughters had been born to them, the sons of God, looking at the women, saw how beautiful they were, and married as many of them as they chose. Yahweh said, 
My spirit cannot be indefinitely responsible for human beings, who are only flesh. Let the time allowed each be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and even afterwards, when the sons of God resorted to the women and had children by them. These were the heroes of days gone by, men of renown. Yahweh saw that human wickedness was great on the earth, and that human hearts contrived nothing but wicked schemes all day long. Yahweh regretted having made human beings on earth, and was grieved at heart. And Yahweh said, I shall rid the surface of the earth of the human beings whom I created, human and animal, the creeping things, and the birds of heaven, for I regret having made them. But Noah won Yahweh's favor. That's the canonical version from Genesis. It's short, it's sparse, and it's cryptic. The identity of the sons of God in particular has troubled theologians for centuries. Some, following St. Augustine, have interpreted them as mortal men. But I don't find this reading very persuasive. Every other time the Bible refers to the sons of God, the Bene Ha Elohim in Hebrew, it's clearly talking not about men, but about angels. In this case, fallen angels, who lay with mortal women and conceived half-breed spawn. Even if it's more of a challenge to our modern way of thinking, it's the reading that the text seems to demand. That was the view taken by the Second Temple Jews, as seen in the Book of Enoch. Enoch builds on the account in Genesis, treating the sons of God as fallen angels, and detailing their names, crimes, and ultimate punishments. The story in Enoch begins when an angel named Shemjaza, that's probably Satan, takes an unnatural interest in human women. Quote, and it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And Shemjaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear you will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath, and bind ourselves by mutual vows not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. End quote. The lustful fallen angels go on to instruct their human wives in magic, teaching them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots. It's not long before the women became pregnant and bore great giants, who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. Soon these giants... These are thought to be the Nephilim of the Genesis accounts. 
began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish, and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. While the insatiable hunger of these monsters plunges the world into chaos, the angels, the fallen angels, extend their forbidden lore to men as well as to women. Each demon teaches a different secret science to mortals. One reveals metallurgy, perhaps to Tubal Cain, the first smith mentioned in Genesis and the father of weapons of war, along with cosmetics the use of minerals for both violence and vanity. Others teach divination and astrology, knowledge of the constellations and clouds, and the secrets of the earth, the sun, and the moon. Their leader, Shemjaza himself, bestows magic upon mankind. From these transgressions, we read in Enoch, there arose much godlessness, and men committed fornication, and they were led astray, and became corrupt in all their ways. At last, as men perished, they cried, and their cry went up to heaven. End quote. I'm not saying that any of this is true. The Book of Enoch is apocryphal, after all, and there's a reason it's not part of the Bible. But I'm not going to dismiss it out of hand, either. The apostles and fathers of the early church took Enoch seriously, and I think we should at least hear what it has to say. It's important to us today not just for its fantastic demonology, but because it gives the first recorded reference to St. Michael the Archangel. When the cries of suffering humanity go up to heaven, it is Michael and his fellow archangels, who hear their lamentations and bring the crimes of their fallen kin before the judgment of God. Because they have defiled themselves through their lust, the demons, who are known in Enoch as the Watchers, as they were sent to watch over the earth, are condemned to be bound and cast into darkness beneath the desert until they receive their final punishments at the end of time. Bind them fast for seventy days, says the Book of Enoch, within the valleys of the earth, till the day of their judgments and of their consummation, till the judgment that is forever and ever is consummated. In those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire, and to the torment and the prison in which they shall be confined forever. The loyal angels are then ordered to destroy all the spirits of the reprobates, and the children of the Watchers, because they have wronged mankind, and to eradicate all wrong from the face of the earth, and let every evil work come to an end. With a single mention of Enoch's great-grandson Noah, reveal to him that the end is coming, that the whole earth will be destroyed, and a deluge is about to come upon the whole earth, and will destroy all that is on it, the seer's vision is tied back into the more familiar story of Genesis. As strange as it may seem to us, it's not actually all that hard to see why this text appealed to so many of the Church Fathers. Predating the birth of Christ by several centuries, the Book of Enoch looked ahead 
to some of the main features of the Christian apocalypse. The last judgments, the chaining of Satan, and the eternal damnation of the demons. In the hands of early Christian writers, such as Lactantius, Enoch also offered a way of assimilating the Hebrew scriptures with the world of classical mythology, which most educated Christians really accepted as true. The giants, spawned from the liaisons of fallen angels with mortal women, could be seen as the monsters of Greek and Roman legend, like the Cyclops and so on. Even St. Augustine, who, as we've seen, was not a huge fan of this book, felt this same need to reconcile the Jewish cosmology with the pagan. But most importantly for us, the Book of Enoch affirmed the place of St. Michael in the minds of Jews and early Christians alike, as the champion of the human race, and especially of the chosen people, against the demonic forces of darkness. So what does the Bible actually say about St. Michael? Surprisingly little. The Archangel is mentioned only a handful of times in the canonical scriptures, once in the Old Testaments and thrice in the New. In the prophecies of the end of the world, found in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 1, we learn that at that time Michael will arise, the great prince, the defender of your people, that will be a time of great distress, unparalleled since nations first came into existence. When that time comes, your own people will be spared. All those whose names are found written in the book. Centuries later, in the epistle of St. Jude, verse 9, we get a snippet of a story about St. Michael arguing with the devil over the body of Moses. We don't really know what Jude is referring to, as the story is not mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. Finally, the best-known scriptural reference to Michael comes from Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, describing the fall of the rebel angels. Quote, and now war broke out in heaven, when Michael with his angels attacked the dragon. The dragon fought back with his angels, but they were defeated and driven out of heaven. The great dragon, the primeval serpent, known as the devil, or Satan, who had led all the world astray, was hurled down to the earth, and his angels were hurled down with him. End quote. That's it. That's all we find in Holy Scripture about the Archangel Michael. So what can we take away from these scattered allusions? Well, first of all, we can see that there's a strong scriptural basis for understanding Michael as the great warrior angel who cast the devil out of heaven. His name, which is he who is like God, casts terror into the hearts of demons, who remember well their defeat at his hands. Second, we can see the special connection between Michael and the people of Israel both in the biological sense of the Jewish race and in the spiritual sense of the church under the New Covenants. There's an old idea in theology. I believe it comes from the misnamed Dionysius the Areopagite, a Greek author who wrote under a pseudonym in the 5th century AD. 
that every ethnos, every people, has its own guardian angel, just like every individual person has his or hers. It's fitting that the chosen people should have received Michael, the prince of all angels, as theirs. Finally, the Bible shows us that Michael has continued to intercede for God's faithful servants throughout history, as in his wrestling with Satan for the sake of Moses. It's with good reason that we still pray to him as a guardian against evil. That tradition of invoking Michael against dangers to body and soul can be seen from the earliest days of Christianity. By the fall of Rome, Michael had come to be seen as the foremost protector of Christians in their struggles, on roughly the same level as our Blessed Mother, whose cults would flower more fully in the High Middle Ages. Indeed, throughout the Dark Ages, between the 5th and 9th centuries, Michael became, arguably, the most universal saints in the Christian world. In an age of chaos, uncertainty, and rampant violence, when the ravages of Islamic and Viking raids threw the future of the church into doubt, it makes perfect sense that Christians turn to the archangel militants for protection. It's not a coincidence that so many remote and dramatic monasteries of this era are named in his honor. From Mont Saint-Michel in the English Channel, which was said to have been captured from a giant, to Skellig Michael off the Atlantic shores of Ireland, where brave monks carved out a precarious life for themselves, away from the anarchy of warring tribes. But Michael was not only worshipped on the embattled fringe of Christendom. Do you remember St. Gregory the Great, the Pope who drove the conversion of Anglo-Saxon England in our last episode? Well, Gregory was also a great promoter of the cult of St. Michael. It's said that when the city of Rome fell victim to a plague during Gregory's reign, the Pope led a procession through the streets to pray for God's mercy. When he arrived at the tomb of the Emperor Hadrian, a mighty mausoleum which doubled as a fortress, Gregory saw a vision of the Archangel Michael standing atop the walls, sheathing his sword as a gesture of peace to mark the end of the plague. At last the city was spared, and the sight of Gregory's vision received the name by which it's better known today, Castel Sant'Angelo, the Holy Angel's Castle. Many colorful legends about St. Michael developed in the High Middle Ages, as Christian civilization emerged from its time of peril and regained its confidence. The most famous come from Italy, where his cult has long been centered at Monte Gorgano in the south. I'd like to share a handful of these stories with you, all drawn from William Caxton's translation of The Golden Legend, the definitive collection of medieval saints' lives, which you may recall from our very first episode on St. George. As usual, I've made a few changes to the language for clarity's sake, but I think you'll still get a sense of the original. Enjoy. The Apparition of Garganos and the Bull The apparitions of this angel are many-folds, 
The first was when he appeared in the Mount of Gargano. This mountain is in Naples, which is named Gargano, and is by the city of Siponto. And in the year of our Lord 390, there was in the same city of Siponto a man who is named Garganos, which, after some books, had taken the name of that mountain, or else the mountain took the name of the man. And he was right rich, and had a great multitude of sheep and beasts. And as they pastured about the sides of the mountains, it happened that a bull left the other beasts, and went upon high to the mountain, and returned not home again with the other beasts. Then this rich man, the owner, took a great multitude of servants, and sought this bull all about, and at the last he was found on high on the mountain, by the entry of a cave. Then the master was wroth, because he had strayed alone from other beasts, and made one of his servants to shoot an arrow at him. And anon, the arrow returned with the wind, and smote the man that had shot it. Thereafter, the men of the city were troubled with this thing, and went to the bishop, and inquired of him what was to be done in this matter that was so wonderful. Then he commanded them to fast three days, and to pray unto God. And when this was done, St. Michael appeared to the bishop, saying, Know ye that this man is so hurt by my will. I am St. Michael the Archangel, who will that this place be worshipped in earth, and will have it surely kept. And therefore I have proved that I am keeper of this place by the demonstrance and showing of this thing. And then anon the bishop and they of the city went with procession unto that place, and dared not enter into it, but made their prayers outside. That's the origin story of the cult of St. Michael at Monte Gargano, one of his main ritual sites in Italy. Caxton's translation of the Golden Legend goes on to tell us more about the victories of St. Michael, both in history, in legend, and in the future. Here they are for you. The Victory of the Christians at Siponto The first victory is that St. Michael gave to them of Siponto in this manner. After a certain time that the place was found, the men of Naples were yet pagans, and ordained to host for to fight against the men of Siponto and of Benevento. And by the counsel of the bishop, the Christian men took truce for three days, that they might fast those three days, and require their patron, St. Michael, unto their aid and help. The third night, the holy St. Michael appeared to the said bishop, and said that their prayers were heard, and promised them to have victory, and commanded them to run on their enemies at the fourth hour of the day, without more tarrying. And when they ran against them, the mountain of Gargano, began strongly to tremble, and a great tempest arose, so that lightning flew about, and a dark cloud covered the mountain, so that six hundred of their adversaries died of the fiery arrows which came from the air. And all the residue of them that were not slain left their idolatry, and submitted them anon to the Christian faith.
The second victory of St. Michael was when he cast the dragon Lucifer out of heaven with all his followers. The third is the daily victory that the angels have over the devils when they fight for us against them and deliver us from their temptations. And the fourth victory is that the archangel Michael shall triumph over the Antichrist at the end of time when he shall slay him. This word of the treble battle in heaven is expounded of the battle that he had with Lucifer when he expulsed him out of heaven, and of the battle that he had with the devils that torments us. In other words, the culmination of Michael's story, the arc of his character over the thousands of years that he has served God, will be at the last day, when he finally smites the devil once and for all. Monte Gargano in the south of Italy remains a sacred site, consecrated to St. Michael to this day. As you can see, the tales that connect it with the Archangel are a charming blend of history, theology, and fairy tale, and they show us how deeply St. Michael's story has been woven into the fabric of folklore throughout the Christian world. Like the legend of George and the Dragon, these tales draw their symbols from the deep well of mythology. The bull, for example, has always stood for vitality and power, which St. Michael bestowed upon the church at his chosen mountain. There are many more stories about Michael from all over the world, and like so many medieval tales, they're great fun to read. But perhaps the best-known feature of St. Michael's cult today is also one of its most recent additions. The St. Michael Prayer, given to us by Pope Leo XIII in 1884. There are a great many stories about the composition of this famous prayer. That the Pope received a vision of demons invading the city of Rome. That he was granted a private revelation from God, in which the devil was granted a hundred years to try to destroy the church. These stories are based on hearsay, rather than the Holy Father's own words, and they often contradict one another. No one can agree, for example, on when the Pope allegedly had these visions. But I think it's a mistake to obsess over these origin stories and the hints of prophecy connected with them, whether or not they're true. What we do know about Pope Leo is already enough. He had a strong devotion to St. Michael, as well as to Our Lady through the Rosary, and encouraged the faithful to invoke the Archangel's protection in their daily lives, just as he instructed priests to call upon him in the course of exorcism. I'd like to close today's episode with this beautiful prayer, as it's one of my personal favorites. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our safeguard against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast down into hell Satan and all the wicked spirits who wander through the world,
seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, pray for us. The Archangel Michael is commemorated on the 29th of September, the Feast of Michaelmas in the Catholic Church, and on the 8th of November in Eastern Orthodoxy. There are innumerable traditions surrounding Michaelmas, from blue masses for police officers to last harvests of summer blackberries, based on a charming folk tale that the devil fell onto a bramble bush and cursed it when St. Michael cast him from heaven. Michael is the patron saint of many causes, including soldiers and law enforcement, and is the special protector of the Jewish people, the Vatican, and the Catholic Church herself. May St. Michael the Archangel, Prince of the Heavenly Host, come to our aid now and always for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Happy Michaelmas. Thanks for listening, and God bless.